morning, everyone. Good morning to Medical Grand Rounds and our annual Lewis B. Matthews Visiting Professorship, and we are delighted to have Dr. Will Ross with us here today. The name lectureship is in memory of longtime Dartmouth-Hitchcock physician and administrator Lewis B. Matthews, Jr. He passed away in 1990, but he had joined the clinic in 1957, and he held various roles during that time and, uh, and also was a, an amazingly beloved clinician. His son, Dale, is a general internist and has carried on in the family tradition. And unfortunately, none of the Matthews family was able to be here with us today. Lisa, who often attends here, uh, was not able to join us. So uh, we are so delighted, though, to have Dr. Ross in Dr. Matthews' memory. Dr. Matthews was an incredible teacher, and he honored his students. And he always felt like they, he described it as they were the leavening to the bread, and they would really make it exciting for him uh, in his work. He also held many administrative roles. He served on uh, the medical school's DAB. He was on the board of trustees of DHMC, the Hitchcock Clinic, Mary Hitchcock Hospital, and he also uh, ran the Hitchcock Foundation for a while. The fund was established by his son, Dale, and other family members in 1991. I just want to quote one thing Dale said. To summarize my thinking on the memorial fund for my father, I see the fund as an opportunity to bring to Dartmouth leading scholars and teachers who exemplify my father's qualities of personal concern and compassion for each patient and who demonstrate expertise in the broad human dimensions of medicine. Doctors who strive their utmost to be healers in Camus' phrase. And I am so delighted that we have Dr. Will Ross with us today because he certainly is in that model. Will Ross is the Associate Dean for Diversity, the Principal Officer for Community Partnerships, and a Professor of Medicine in the Division of Nephrology at Washington University School of Medicine. While overseeing diversity and community affairs over the past two decades, Dr. Ross has recruited and developed a diverse group of medicines, residents, and faculty. Dr. Ross helped establish free local medical clinics, such as the Saturday Free Clinic, and the Casa de Salud, and has worked nationally and globally to promote health equity. He is a charter and founding member of the St. Louis Regional Health Commission, chairman of the St. Louis Board of Health, and served as the chairman of the board of the Missouri Foundation for Health. He is a founder of the nonprofit Health Literacy Media and a founding member of the Collegiate School of Medicine and Bioscience, which is a magnet high school for students pursuing careers in medicine and biomedical sciences. He's a co-founder of the program in public health in Cap Haitian, Haiti. He is a former member of the Centers for Disease Control Health Committee on Health Disparities, where he helped incorporate social determinants of health in the CDC Promotions Framework in Healthy People 2020. He served on the Institute of Medicine's Health Literacy Roundtable and is the founding associate editor of Frontiers in Public Health Education and Promotion. He previously served as Chief Medical Officer of St. Louis Regional Hospital, which was the last public hospital in St. Louis. Dr. Ross has numerous scientific publications and book chapters, and he's co-author of the Lexington Press book, Poverty and Place. He earned his bachelor's degree from Yale University and an MD from Washington University School of Medicine. He did his residency in internal medicine at Vanderbilt and went back to WashU for his nephrology fellowship. 
He completed a master's degree in epidemiology at St. Louis University. <clears throat> Finally, he's the recipient of the 2005 State of Missouri Martin Luther King Distinguished Service in Medicine Award, the 2009 Washington University Medical Center Alumni Faculty Achievement Award, the 2011 Health Literacy Media Trailblazer Award, and the 2013 Samuel Goldstein Leadership in Medical Education Award. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ross here today. Thank you, Dr. Rossini, for that. Welcome. Uh, good, morning. good morning. It's good to be back here at Dartmouth. I was here about 19 years ago as a Martin Luther King Day lecturer and just enjoyed my time on campus. I'd probably been, I think I was back back in the early 90s for another another seminar here on related. Uh, and I'm always, I was just saying, I'm always glad to be here in New Hampshire. Actually, I got my, um, is this on? Yes, great. I, I got my, uh, my roots in New Hampshire. Uh, just before I start, uh, I'm not going to this, but uh, I grew up in the inner city of Memphis, Tennessee back in the 60s. And um, I had an opportunity to escape some harrowing experiences of games moving in. A Jewish couple actually adopted me, uh, got me basically had I probably wouldn't even be here talking to me. Killed. Uh, tough time. Uh, and so they spurred me out of uh, out of Memphis and found a place for me in some program in Exeter, New Hampshire, Exeter Phillips uh, Exeter Academy, uh, not too far from here. Uh, that was transformative, absolutely transformative. I saw things I could have never imagined. I envisioned worlds I never could have dreamed of, uh, and it just changed my trajectory on people, on, on medicine, on society. And so I'm always excited to think about New Hampshire and come back in New Hampshire. And that's why I'm delighted to be here on this one. Um, I don't feel like I'm projecting. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so as, as we... We're going we're gonna to switch body packs. Oh, Hey, Mike, does that sound better? Does it sound better in the back? I know I couldn't hear you, Mike. Is this better? Oh, okay, great. Thank you. So I can advance slides here. Yeah. And I'll try not to interrupt you again. <laughs> great. Better, Mike? Uh, so... Um, with that uh, introduction, I really want to share some experiences with you about uh, why I feel so passionately about the things that I do, uh, why this is relevant, not just to advance diversity and inclusion, but to really advance on the whole field of social uh, determinants of health leading to health equity. And I want to really raise some questions about why we do things we do. I think it's important that we critique ourselves uh, about why we're doing this. What is the ultimate purpose? Uh, uh, so I'm going to raise some pointed questions, uh, and I hope we have a spirited discussion after those pointed questions. Because I think that you know, unexamined life is not worth living, according to Socrates. Uh, so we're going to examine some things. And uh, uh, first, I... Okay, well, only for a second. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, well, we don't need this, do we? <laughs> so look at the first bullet. Um, so what I really want to do is, is address this issue of diversity and inclusion, talk about the definition, but then ask, what are we doing with all of this? I've been involved in this field for, dec for a couple of decades, and I've seen a, a, essentially a cottage industry develop of those uh, uh, who are addressing diversity, inclusion, and promoting programs. And I see this litany of programmatic activities build up and build up. And I have to ask myself, what, is, what are we trying to do with all this? Uh, I mean, I, I think we have to remind ourselves of, of the ultimate outcome. I'm, in the, I'm a scientist by definition. I'm an epidemiologist. I mean, I want to see the data. I want to see the outcomes. I want to make sure that we really are moving in that direction. And so I really want to talk about this dynamic interaction, you know, the intersectionality of cultural diversity and inclusion as it re uh, uh, reflects you know, this overwhelming desire to improve health equity. There are some side discussion items that we'll go over, but this you know, the, the latter uh, four bullets really are um, a subsidiary to our main goal of, of connecting diversity and inclusion with health equity. Now, this is important because I, uh, a few years ago, I spent six, seven, actually almost seven years working with a group at the Centers for Disease Control as we were asking ourselves, how do we how do we write in this whole concept of health equity into our Healthy uh, uh, People uh, Initiative, Healthy People 2010, and then most recently Healthy People 2020? We had a long and substantive debate about these issues. Because I, but prior to then, I would talk about health disparities, you know, the disproportionate burden of disease borne by a particular group, even when you control for access to health care. Essentially, you know, the definition of health disparities that we know so well. Uh, but when I go over and talk abroad, particularly in England and, you know, those, you know, France, they look at me uh, askance and say, well, you Americans, you're always talking about this group versus that group. You're pitting people together. You should be thinking about something much more egalitarian. Uh, you should adopt our model. Uh, we love each other over in Europe. And so we believe believe that every European, this is what they said, every European should be able to reach their full health potential. That's what we call health equity. And that resonated with me. I think that makes sense. And so that's not a zero-sum game. You know, in this country when we're so concerned about, no, 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 you aren't. You're a very rarefied progressive group. But some people are really concerned about appropriating resources from one group and moving it over to another group. And we have people worried about social engineering. And, you know, it gets people really, you know, hot under the collar. And I, I know my, my, my take is that let's talk about taking every individual, every population, and ensuring that they can realize their full health potential. That's not a zero-sum game. That's the American tradition. Uh, and I think that we were, uh, that's the word that I will try to use throughout this talk, health equity. Uh, and so we were really fortunate. It took a long time, but we really got that language in, into Healthy People 2020. And I think it, it really spurred a national movement on, on, you know, on this topic. So, so as we discuss this, we're going to now ask what groups or what individuals aren't realize potential and why and when I ask that question it reminds me of this poem from Langston Hughes it's from this wonderful series called a montage on the dream deferred beautifully written um, 
And uh, many of you may have seen this, uh, this poem. We ask, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore, and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or doesn't it explode? Oh, powerful, powerful statements. And so we're going to ask, who's not reaching their full health potential? Who's leading a dream deferred? Why do we have young black men who can't reach their full health potential because they're victims of gun violence in this country? Uh, why do we have whole communities that can't access uh, a, a, uh, a simple commodity like fresh water uh, because of, of structural racism and, and, and um, uh, um, economic inequality, income inequality? Uh, I could put this slide here of Flint, Michigan, and the water crisis, but frankly, I can go anywhere across the country and talk about these inequities and why certain individuals, certain communities aren't reaching their full health potential. Uh, but first, I want to go back and just tell my story because I've been doing this for a long time and I don't get tired of doing this because I believe this to my core that we have held to tell to the American public and we've not been successful in using the right language. As a consequence, those of us who consider ourselves experts don't use the right language, and we and we now we have what you see. We have these two Americas, eight Americas out. You'll hear about a little later. Uh, completely divided, not really bonded together by a common purpose, a common language. We have erred, and it's up to you, uh, the enlightened, to really understand this and really try to embody this this focus on health equity and use the right language. Here's my Here's my story. That's me in the middle. I guess you figured that out. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was five years old growing in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and during that time, I, you know, it was a tough time. I, I mean, I grew up with a single mother who had some mental illness, you know, severe depression, six kids, uh, no father, living in really difficult uh, areas, uh, housing projects, uh, uh, very you know, tough housing um, uh, at a time when Memphis was having uh, catharsis uh, because of the uh, the civil rights movement uh, uh, emanating and, and really creating a desire for change. Uh, I was there uh, during the garbage strike when uh, two uh, men were, were crushed in a, in a garbage um, uh, um, truck because they were not allowed to go inside the uh, um, the main cabin during a thunderstorm, and that led to Dr. King coming into uh, to Memphis in 1968. All these images uh, were seared into my consciousness. Uh, they were things that I saw personally on the streets uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and unfortunately, all of this really came to a a, 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 a tragic end, of course. Uh, when Dr. King was assassinated in the Lorraine Motel, downtown Memphis, a mere two miles from where I grew up. Uh, this, uh, I was 10 years old, uh, and this uh, ripped me apart because I saw what was happening in my community. I, I saw the need, and I saw Dr. King talking about dreams deferred and, and dreams, how dreams could be realized. 
And and I came across, uh, so years later, I came across this quote from Dr. King. He delivered this, this lecture to a group of physicians uh, in Chicago at the time. And a lot of people seeing this quote, but they misunderstand what he's saying. He's saying of all the forms of inequality and justice of health, it's the most shocking and the most inhuman. He doesn't say inhumane. I mean, I, I've, I've seen that error in, in, the, in the translation of this. He's, he says inhuman, subhuman, below, beneath human, uh, lacking in dignity. I mean, he really was striking at the core of, of what happens when we don't treat people with dignity and respect. We're treating them as, as something less than human, which really meant that we as a country should be at the forefront of, uh, of addressing uh, health disparities uh, in our civil rights agenda. Now, let, let me, now, now let me, with, with that introduction, let me briefly pivot. To, I think it's real important to understand what was going on in Dr. King's mind uh, as, we, as he uttered those words, and, and how can we take his philosophy and translate that into uh, an action uh, of, of eliminating health disparities. Understand, it's, true, it's important to understand why he believed those things to his core. So when Dr. King was a graduate student at Boston University, one of his uh, mentors, I say mentors, one of his um, historical mentors uh, was Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, a leading uh, a philosopher, uh, phenomenal, gifted uh, writer uh, at the time, uh, and he had just completed this treatise called Moral Man and Immoral Society. And uh, he really uh, 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 raised a question about uh, uh, how can we as a society claim to, have to be enlightened, to be elevated, uh, when we have these different perspectives on who has access to resources. And he talked about man's capacity for justice uh, makes democracy possible, but man's inclination for injustice makes a democracy necessary. Uh, Dr. King read those words, and, and if you were to go back and look at any of Dr. King's speeches, notes from the Birmingham jail, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the strength to love, and even his, uh, his I have a dream speech, you will see elements of Nibiru's writing uh, in Dr. King's. In fact, some people say the elements are, are really Deep, so deeply embedded that you cannot uh, disentangle Dr. King from Rinho Nibur. Uh, it just shows, just shows the impact this person had on, on Dr. King. Well, uh, another uh, influence that, that we aren't as aware of in terms of who was influencing the, the, you know, the underlying uh, course scholarship behind the civil rights movement was none other than uh, Gunnar Myrtle, who was a Swedish sociologist who came to this country to study our uh, on um, um, a history of of, uh, of race relations, and he penned this uh, uh, book, American Dilemma, uh, about twelve hundred pages. Um, uh, he's stated you know he kind of chronicled the Negro uh, the Negro problem in modern society, and uh, and and he, he 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 nailed it. He basically said that as a country. We claim that we have this, this exceptionalism as, as America. We, you know, Ronald Reagan said that we're the city on the hill, right? So we, we've been, we, 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 we go around and, and we, we, we hold up this, this, these moral uh, virtues, uh, but undergirding that, we have this 
deep-seated structural inequity, structural racism, and we have this moral evaluation that as we have to, because we hold this exceptionalism to one degree, we have to find ways of justifying the subjugation of some people uh, uh, to, an, uh, uh, to the world. And, and that created a lot of tension, and he tapped into that. It's a wonderful book, wonderful read. I just finished reading it a second time uh, a few years ago, and it, it, it takes some effort. But it's, um, it's a great read. Those two readings, along with Dr. King, really uh, were at the center of uh, my early scholarship when I was establishing our Office of Diversity and uh, Inclusion at Washington University. And so I was able to pen our mission, the medical school's mission statement. Uh, and, you know, and so here, here's how our mission statement reads, you know, the, the first part of it. Uh, creating leaders in biomedicine, the culture that supports diversity, inclusion, critical thinking, and creativity. But, not but, and, and most importantly, I went on to write, and I write, and I state emphatically, improving cultural diversity should not only be a, a moral imperative, but it should be a centerpiece in our efforts to eliminate health disparities. I mean, I, I, I made sure that I, I connected this, this, this concept of, of, of moral uh, uh, enlightenment uh, with our efforts to address disparities. I wanted us as a medical school to make the statement that we believe in diversity and inclusion because it's a moral issue. Now, a lot of people have, have tried to, not tried, they, they, have, they have attempted to justify their efforts by saying, well, we want population parity. That's why we promote diversity and inclusion. Population parity in Hanover, New Hampshire, there's not a lot of racial and ethnic diversity in Hanover and New Hampshire, or, okay? Uh, so that argument won't really hold. And so then, so there are other arguments. We want to do so because, you know, it makes us all better and brighter. Well, it does, yes, yeah. I mean, you get a diverse crowd, and they're going to outperform an undiverse crowd in any area from law, business, to medicine. The data speaks volumes of that. But now that's not enough either. That's not sufficient. And then there's the economic argument. Well, we're doing this because uh, we, we, we have to engage others so that we can build our, our economic capital and have a greater economic outlay. Well, that's a, that's a cold and kind of callous business sense. And I, I, don't, I, I understand those things, but I think that we should strive for something higher. And we have been reluctant to adopt the argument and, we've, and as a consequence, we've ceded the moral argument to others. And, and, and we've taken the back seat. And, and now we're reacting as we've seen negative forces conspire against our enlightened uh, view of, of uh, health equity. And so, so with that now, I want to make sure we're all on board with this because we're going to go a little deeper with that. So I look at, the, at what I consider you know, the definitions of diversity and inclusion. And, and so, I mean, if diversity, you know, certainly you have a group of people who reflect different beliefs, different systems uh, who are in a room uh, engaging. That's good. That's diversity. Inclusion means that that group of individuals actually has the ability to leverage that diversity to an outcome, a positive outcome. That is, they have a voice. That's inclusion. I get that. You all get that. Um, so... Uh, I'm still saying, you know, that that's, that's not always enough for me. I, I, 
I understand why we want to have diversity. Uh, and, and, and there are lots of reasons we can justify why we want to have diversity. The population argument, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, equal access uh, uh, to careers, we're going to talk about that also, the fact that even now in 2019, uh, despite all our efforts, we have not yet achieved anywhere near um, parity uh, and access to careers. Uh, only now, uh, in 2019, for the first time, women are, have exceeded the number of men in U.S. medical schools. That just, you know, data just released. That's good. It's 2019. It took, <laughs> took some time. Uh, and so, you know, this act, equal access is, is really difficult. Uh, access to care to the underserved, clearly something that resonates with me because of my personal story. Uh, delivering culturally appropriate care, I think that's important to do that. Uh, but you don't have to be, uh, uh, have racial concordance or even linguistic concordance in order to deliver appropriate cultural competent care. You simply have, have to care. And, 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 and I can go in and I can care from someone who grew up in Cape Girardeau, a low-income uh, uh, white uh, uh, community in St. Louis, uh, and, and we can be completely racially discordant. Or someone can come into an African-American community who grew up in, um, in uh, uh, Short Hills, New Jersey, uh, affluent area of New Jersey, and, complete, and actually have that, that sense. It's, it's the understanding, it's the ability to care. And that's why we have to be careful about this argument that only certain groups can deliver cultural competent care. That's not true. Uh, our research agenda, of course, has addressed this. And then, you know, most importantly, we, we managed healthcare systems. The Dartmouth History Medical Center is a world-renowned uh, healthcare system. It's important that, that we have the talent in, in those academic centers to deliver that care. These are all very wise arguments, very sound arguments. They're not sufficient. When we talk about diversity, here's, here's what I'm saying to you all. Here's the challenge. When someone says, hi, I do diversity and inclusion, you say, why? Why are you doing diversity and inclusion? What are you trying to achieve with diversity and inclusion? What's the purpose? You have to ask that hard question, and we don't ask that hard question. And the answer is that you do this because I have, I want us, Dartmouth Medical Center, to realize the values that we believe, our core values. But most importantly, number two, we want to address the complex problems in society. That's why we do diversity. And by doing that, then we realize our own viability. Our viability is our, our success, our, 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 our elevation among the top tier academic medical centers because we are realizing our true potential to address the most complex issues in our society. We take on things that a lot of people think academic medical centers shouldn't be taking on. We aren't afraid to go into this, this area of looking at the social and structural determinants of health. And we realize that that's just as important as my being able to provide dialysis service to a patient that we do not demean the importance of providing transportation, childcare, of, of food, uh, addressing food insecurity, providing support for prescription uh, medicines. These things are just as important as you writing a prescription for some uh, uh, cancer therapy that costs $10,000 a month. 
I do that. I use a drug called Echolizumab to treat it. I won't go into the details, but it costs $300,000 over six months, okay? You know, if I had to ask what's the purpose of, of, of that drug versus all these other complex issues, I realize that there's some other things we could be doing. You all with me so far? Great. Okay, so, so I talked about who I am and what I believe in. And I hope that we all have this level of introspection, that we really are, are open enough to ask ourselves who we are and what do we truly believe in to our core and why do we believe these things. Otherwise, we're going to be doing a dance around diversity and inclusion and just playing with this and not really realizing the potential of a place like Dartmouth. And so my values, I've told you, are the values of, of the product of the civil rights movement in Memphis, Tennessee. These are not things I saw on TV. These are things I saw in real life. I witnessed these things. Ladies and gentlemen, I've seen people blown away gunpoint, you know, when I was, you know, 15 years old. I mean, I, can you imagine what that, by the time I was 10, I see things that adults should not see. So, you know, so these things aren't all good, okay? I'm going to be the first to tell you that as a classic, you know, Ben Spalletti nailed it. He talked about, you know, how these adverse childhood experiences shapes our ability to function in later life. Well, there, he gave a list of 10 adverse childhood experiences uh, and, and how, you know, you know, two or three of those could really make someone dysfunctional. I had all 10. <laughs> I kid you not. But... I'm saying I'm here. I survived. I survived with a dream. Why did I survive? Because I started asking myself some difficult questions early on in life about what on earth is going on. Why is this happening? And I started challenging conventions. And that's why I survived, because I started challenging and, and, and envisioning something a lot brighter, a lot, you know, something in the future. I was future-oriented. As a consequence of all this, I said, there has to be a better world. There has to be a better society. When you talk about resilience and ask who are the ones who really get through things, they are forward-thinking people. They don't think in a moment. Uh, they're not reactive people. They, they live a dream, a dream world. And you can think, how can they, are, they, are they removed from reality? No, living a dream world is great because you can see things that others can't see. That's how you survive. Now, this is an amusing tale. Uh, so, uh, when I, I um, after my fellowship, uh, I switched over. I had really, um, I had an opportunity to work with a certain general at the time, Tony Novello, back uh, uh, when I was a fellow. And she was the one who really pushed me to do more in public health. She said, Will, you know, you want to change society? No, you yeah, you love sodium channels. You're kind of a geek and a nerd. I get this, but uh, but if you want to change society, you need to do public health. And so she really convinced me to do this, and I really loud her. And so as I went back uh, to Washington University uh, to do more uh, to, to move the center to create an institute for public health and MPH program and all those things, I started asking myself this question: Why there's still so many organizations that, that talk about minority affairs? And there are deans of diversity and minority affairs. And why, what are they doing? Again, I'm always asking the question, why? Why are you doing this? And so I posed a question to minority affairs officers at a meeting in 2004 uh, in, San, uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I said, you are, I mean, I was being inclusive. We're not doing our jobs, okay? 
we're counting bodies. Okay, we got this number of black students and this number of Native American students. Ooh, yeah, right. We're, we're counting bodies. But what's the purpose of counting bodies if you're not going to leverage that effort to, uh, to addressing and ameliorating real issues? Remember, we're trying to solve complex problems. So I'm saying that we need to do more as minority affairs officers. Uh, we need to change our name uh, and include equity, uh, include cultural, uh, include uh, community engagement. And I'm going to tell you something. The pushback was was remarkable. It was just, <laughs> I mean, I felt they were coming after me. And so I, and there's this one meme in the internet where you know the, the two hounds going through the street, and little cats kind of hiding from them. So I, I felt like that meme. So I was trying to hide from these, uh, and I could think, oh my. Getting it. Uh, once someone I thought was really supportive uh, sent me this long letter saying, Will, I realize, realize what you're trying to do and I support you. But then I realized there was something in his, in his body of his, uh, of his, uh, uh, yeah. So I don't know if this was purposeful or not, but he addressed it to the such a thing for adversity. Uh, I, to this day, I don't know if that was intentional or not, uh, but I was feeling it. And I was not going to back down. And, I, and, and so, here, so I was not going to back down because I want to go over why some of the arguments we've used haven't really worked uh, and why we, uh, we're not looking at a, at a bigger picture. Now, so one of the arguments we talk about in terms of diversity and inclusion is this population argument that we want to have a, a we're, 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 we want to have population parity among groups that are expanding. And the largest expanding group in America, of course, are, are, are the Latinx generation. And so, again, this is not working. I can't see that. I can barely see that. Okay. So, okay, so here, so we know that by uh, year 2044, the minority population will become the numerical majority. This already happened in, in California and Texas. And we say that this is, this is good that, that the society is becoming diverse. Okay, now, would you take this argument uh, to a group of people who have historically had power, and you say, well, guess what, guys? You're no longer in power. Uh, you're going to lose all your authority because something is changing. So give us the keys, and you go and hide somewhere. <laughs> Do you really think that, that the group in power who's had power for centuries will simply exceed power, concede? Frederick Douglass said that power concedes nothing without a struggle. It never has, and it never will. You guys open the newspapers. You watch TV. You've seen what's happening. This is a power conflict of the greatest magnitude, and the reverberations will be uh, 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 seen witnessed over a generation. It's just starting, folks. It hasn't begun to get ugly yet, irrespective of whoever is holding the presidency of the, of the, of the United States. Do not be deluded. This is a major issue. And it's based on this concept. And I'm saying that although that's true, that's not Really, I mean, we just state that that's something we need to, we, we, it's, a, it's a data fact. Um, but what we, we, we haven't really put this into context in saying that we have to elevate a group and then maintain the fact that we can provide resources to all, that is, every individual, this, this emerging group and all other groups still should reach their full health potential, right? There is no zero-sum game. There's no win or lose here. And we've created this into a win or lose situation to our detriment. Now, uh, along with that population argument, 
You know, uh, I came to medical school in, uh, here in 1980, and uh, here's what happened after the Civil Rights Movement. Of course, the percentage of medical students, uh, these are matriculants, uh, uh, percentage uh, underrepresented minority matriculants in medical school, w, uh, WMC data from 1950 to 2001, and the matriculants were somewhere about 2.5%. And we did see this uh, this phenomenal increase uh, to about seven seven and a half percent after the civil rights movement. But you can see this curve was basically flat uh, for uh, a good twenty years, only increasing uh, translate in response to a WMC effort called Project Three Thousand by Two Thousand. Uh, but essentially, has uh, unfortunately downturned. So nothing has changed, despite all our efforts. The diversity and inclusion, all the you know the efforts on the street, for the most part, nothing has changed. Uh, in fact, I went to medical school in 1980, uh, and uh, there were only I think at Washington University maybe about five percent students of color. Would you believe that uh, that there are fewer African American males in graduate in medical school now than there were uh, uh, 32 years ago, based on this data uh, from the WMC uh, 2014? Um, and in fact, the percentage of African American medical students who matriculated fell from 6.3% to 6.1% in 2011. I just reviewed the most recent 2000, uh, most recent WMC data, and the uh, the number of your of, of African American matriculants finally increased by 3.2% this past year, but among African Americans, that number was only 0.66%. The rise in in matriculants overall in URMs have been through the growth of Latino, uh, the Latinx uh, population. So things have not changed. Uh, you know, here's an even more graphic illustration of how that population argument just is, is, isn't holding. So here we're looking at uh, physicians by graduation. Uh, and I took some WFC data, and I, I decided to, to, to book in it by 1980, because that was the day that I went into medical school going forward. And we're looking at, uh, you know, this data of, of, uh, of physicians by grade stratified uh, uh, by race, white women, white men, so on and so forth. And you can see that, you know, in this time period, there's been a, a downturn of white men paralleled by an increase in white women. And now, as we, I just said earlier, this curve has finally increased, so white women are now the plurality. But he, here, you know, just... Just holding on to the uh, to the, uh, 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 the the x-axis are the uh, percentage of African Americans, uh, men or women, and you can't see them there in the blue in the dark blue, and for the most part they've been unchanged, flat since 1980. Not a significant change in in that time period. It's just absolutely remarkable. Uh, and so if you were a CEO of some large corporation and someone came to you with this data, you were saying, what, I hired you to do this and it's not working. You wouldn't, you wouldn't tolerate this. Even when you look at your own faculty, uh, uh, for those of us who make it into uh, academia, you can see what happens when we stratify. This, is, uh, this data shows URM faculty diversity uh, 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 index according to uh, a year. Uh, but it's based uh, stratifying them into those who are uh, either assistant professors or full professors, uh, either clinical or uh, or basic uh, or basic science. And so you can see. Uh, let's look at. I'm a clinical professor. Let's just take me here in the in the blue uh, um, 
circles. So, you know, we've gone from maybe 2.2% uh, to maybe 5.8%. Uh, I think anyone here would understand those are really small numbers. The growth has been mostly in those who have been assistant professors who stay in those ranks for an inordinate period of time. What we're doing isn't working. And so, uh, and so, um, uh, all we're doing, all this work, and at the same time, we're seeing this further and further stratification in society. When we're supposed to be using diversity uh, and inclusion to enhance society, we're seeing a widening of society. Things are getting worse. So I want to go back to the civil rights movement when, um, uh, when President Lyndon Johnson initiated the Great Society. In response to the, the, lots, the rise in Watts, California, he uh, charged a group uh, led by former Ohio um, Governor Otto Kerner to look at the roots, the genesis of, of, of urban unrest. And this group was called the Kerner Commission. I think many of you have heard of the Kerner Commission. And they were the ones who famously concluded that we're in two Americas, uh, uh, separate and unequal. Two Americas. Well, I would submit to you that we are living in an age, according to Chris Mary and Mahid Izadi, where we have actually eight Americas. Eight Americas, separate and unequal. And here's that data looking, uh, published in 2005. Uh, this group of uh, investigators stratified uh, the population into eight different populations, uh, with uh, America one being uh, um, uh, Asians, uh, and then America eight being black high-risk urban uh, 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 populations and, and looking at their, uh, their life expectancy. And so among males, so he, here's African-American males, and you can see the life expectancy here. And then at the top would be uh, uh, Asian males. And you can see this, this, this remarkable uh, 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 difference in age uh, of almost 15, 16 years. You can see this you know, uh, still. Um, in pretty much every community, uh, I will, whether we're talking about certain areas close to here, Manchester or, or East Baltimore or West Philly or South Central L.A., Detroit, you see this. Uh, in my own city, you see this remarkable disparity, uh, 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 the people who are not reaching their full health potential. This is, this is the issue that we have. Now, when we, when we use this term health equity, it's important. Remember I said health equity is an inclusive term. We're talking about every individual to be able to reach their full health potential. It's not as either or. And there's another group that has not reached their full health potential in society. And we're seeing for the first time, you know, and I still keep in touch with my colleagues at the Centers for Disease Control, and we just released a report earlier this year showing that for the first time in America, life expectancy, the overall life expectancy is falling. Why? We know, because of the opioid epidemic. This group knows this more than anyone else. And, and, and we're seeing you know, these, these, these lives of despair um, uh, culminate in these tragic deaths. And as a consequence, we've seen an 11% increase in the death rate of non-Hispanic whites with, uh, uh, with actually a reduction in the death rates of non-Hispanic blacks Hispanics over this time period, 2000 to 2014. There are more blacks and Hispanics dying in this country uh, than whites by a wide margin in terms of the percentage. Uh, but this was a remarkable blip, and we missed this as a country. We absolutely missed it. Uh, uh, there's a great book 
J.D. Vance. I'm blocking the name. I wrote a book called Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, is it Vance? I'm, I'm, so I'm blocking the name. Okay, so it's a wonderful read. I beg all of you to go and read that book. It's classic. Because it talks about this population that was really missed, that's isolated, uh, that uh, they were having these deaths of despair. And as a consequence of their deaths and despair and the anguish, they were ripe for, for someone, some demagogue, to go in and, and, and stir resentment. And you know what happened. You know what's happening in this country. Uh, we should have been at the lead of addressing this issue. We were not. And as a consequence, we lost the opportunity to get this population to reach the full health potential. This population now is angry at everybody, people like me and others, uh, thinking that we're the cause. Uh, we failed to really address this. And we're, for, uh, we, uh, we, as a country, we're just, uh, we, we, we missed a golden opportunity. I mentioned, oh, I, didn't, I forgot I had this in here. Uh, so I, I mentioned we don't have to go far when we talk about who's not realizing their full health potential. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, uh, what's, you know, what are we trying to do, right? Remember what I said? We're trying to address the most complex problems in society. Here's a complex issue. Look at the, at the upper panel, the death rates from opioid overdoses in New Hampshire. Just remarkable, just, just, just staggering. And so this is right outside your windows. This is why Darwin Hitchcock Center exists. This is your raison d'etre. And if you're not addressing this, then you're letting people, uh, you're not allowing this group to reach their full health potential. And I ask, what's the purpose of an academic medical center? Bill Falpin, uh, Faust, uh, the president of Harvard, former president of Harvard, really wrote it beautifully years ago. She's saying, we in academia have to just wake up. What's the expression? We need to get woke. I try my, I'm trying to get hip. I have two daughters. <laughs> and I am so hard. It's, I'm trying my best to do this. You have to get woke. Uh, and she's saying that the purpose of academia, going back all to the roots in Europe, is really to create leaders who can actually elevate society. Uh, and we're not doing our jobs if we're sequestering ourselves in these beautiful environments here on this campus if we don't realize that one in four children in Manchester uh, um, have to live in poverty, highest crime rates uh, in, in the state and Manchester. Uh, we have to do more. I can talk, I'm not talking badly about Manchester or New Hampshire. Again, we can go across the country, and I've gone across the country looking at these communities. I want to be there. I want to go into every hamlet and say, who's not realizing that full health potential and why? And if they're not realizing the full health potential, where are all these diversity and inclusion people? Why are they not out here doing something? Why are they not, they're not screaming? Why are they taking the, the mantle of charging ahead? What's the purpose of diversity and inclusion? I could be in Sandtown outside Baltimore and see this data where the infant mortality rates are, are you know, 30% higher and, and you can see life expectancy lower and gun uh, uh, homicides higher in a, in a community outside of Baltimore. I was recently in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've been in Milwaukee a number of times exploring this issue uh, uh, about um, who's not reaching that full health potential because there's one Zip code in, in, in Milwaukee, 53206, which was described as an ecosystem of disadvantage. 42% uh, poverty rate, 52% of children live below poverty. That's uh, among the highest in the country. 
We also have the highest uh, African-American incarceration in the country, in, in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. So I had to go there. I had to go there and I said, why are they, why are they not reaching their full health potential? And I, and I went and lectured at, the, uh, at, at Medical College of Wisconsin. I said, you guys have a great foundation. No, 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 no a, a, a real foundation, a medical, a, a, health, a philanthropic foundation. That was they have a good academic foundation, but they have a medical foundation, they have a, this philanthropic foundation. What are you doing? And, and I, I had to remind them so of, of what they could do, what they had done uh, to really address this issue in my own town. And of course it happened in, in St. Louis. Many of you are aware of what happened in 2014 when we had the, the social and civil unrest in Ferguson, St. Louis. Uh, Ferguson is not some remote outpost, despite what you may hear. Ferguson is St. Louis. It's just a suburb. We in some of St. Louis want to say, well, it happened in Ferguson. Those people over there, uh, we are much more edified. We don't have civil unrest in their eye medical center. Now, I poo-poo that. It happened in Ferguson. Uh, and But here's why it happened in Ferguson. Okay, and I have to remind people this all the time. Michael Brown, young black man, did not, he, he died um, uh, from a police bullet, uh, but that's not why Ferguson erupted. This is why Ferguson erupted, because this was a community that had staggering high rates of poverty, infant mortality, uh, unemployment rate, sure, they're like, they're now this number, if I, this is 2015, updated this number, sure, we're at 3.5%, Overall, but the African-American unemployment is still three times that, and lower educational attainment. And so I went around in 2014 and saying, let's look at the root causes. Let's look at these sexual and structural issues. Otherwise, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it sag like a heavy load, or does it explode? It exploded on us, and it can explode anywhere in this country. And finally, Finally, the press woke up. They got woke. <laughs> they woke up and they got it. And I was so happy when they wrote, it was the intersection of poverty, unemployment, lack of educational opportunity, and deep-rooted racial animosity where the confrontation developed that caused Michael Brown his life. They finally got it. It took some time. It took five years. Let's hope that we get it. What am I saying? I may not be clear in saying that I'm just a country doctor, kidney, uh, country kidney doctor, right? I drive my horse and buggy around town. Okay, so let's talk to someone who's a true scholar and ask, what, is it, what am I trying to say? And here's how he, I would channel my words uh, into Todd Nehisi Coates, a really remarkable and gifted writer who published a great book, uh, Between the World and Me. I just love that book. I think he captured it beautifully. He said, one cannot at once claim to, be claim to be superhuman and then plead mortal error. Does that sound familiar? If you go back to, I, I kind of alluded to uh, the work uh, from Gunnar Myrtle, it's the same language. I propose to take our countrymen's claims of moral exception of American exceptionalism seriously, which is to say, I propose subjecting our country to an exceptional moral standard. He used the terms moral, 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 the terms that we're uncomfortable talking about in medicine. It makes us uncomfortable because we say, whose morality are we talking about? And I remind you that my, my views are for Dr. King's views, who really, his, his views stretch not just to 
Reinhold Niebuhr, but you're going all the way back to Greek philosophy. Aristotle was the one who really talked about having this, uh, this, this, this centralized moral authority. Someone has to, has to have a moral center, and that moral center does not deviate. Uh, you can find that moral center in every community, in every culture throughout history. It, 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 it's, it's, it's absolutely um, unmistakable. This is the issue. We do not use this whole focus on morality. So let me close. Take some time for questions. So I'm saying among the issues of diversity, diversity is a moral issue. It is a moral issue. Let's skip some things here. here. And I want to go straight to this. Um, and so what does diversity do? Finally, you, you have to realize our viability. We have to address complex issues. And so those in diversity and inclusion who want to do this work have to step out and say, here's what we need to do on a larger scale, which led me to really work to create a health commission uh, to address our uh, um, health disparities in St. Louis. They created an organization that really addressed trauma-informed care toxic stress building up in communities exposed to all these adverse experiences and the Credit Institute for Public Health. These things led me to really get our institution to look more broadly. Uh, and then to create opportunities for equity for those in St. Louis and beyond. And this, these are some, some examples of things. Now, it took me 24 years to do this. Okay? I've been at this for a long time in terms of creating new uh, clinics, uh, providing uh, health opportunities for the Latino population, uh, creating a whole new school for kids in their city who want to, who aspire to health professions, careers, and biotechnology careers. If you, I mean, this is, this is realizing your viability and addressing complex solutions. It's hard work. It's going out into the community. It's taking the resources of Dartmouth and Dartmouth-Hitchcock and, and projecting them more broadly. It's going outside of your comfort zone. This is what we should be doing if we really truly believe all this. So, um, I was going to talk about this one issue about Wisconsin to give you an example that these things can work. So let me just take this last minute to give you this example. I think it's so important. So, uh, so uh, back in uh, uh, early, two, early 1900, 19 uh, to 2000, um, uh, Dane County, Wisconsin had the highest infant mortality rates in the country. Uh, rates over 20 deaths per 1,000 live born with the World Health Organization benchmark being five that's 1,000 live born. So four times higher in, in, this, in this area. And so the Medical College, Medical College of Wisconsin um, decided, you know what, we're going to go outside and we're going to address this complex issue. And their diversity and inclusion people got together, and they worked with people in the community. They worked with the Healthcare Foundation. They all came together. They said, let's address this issue of infant mortality. Let's put all our resources in this one initiative and see what happens. And here's what happened. In this time period, you know, here, again, uh, this heavy drug, black circle shows the, uh, the, the black rates of infant mortality as opposed to the white rates. In this time period, the black infant mortality rate plummeted. It plummeted below that of the white population. So don't tell me that it can't be done. I refuse to believe that. We have the data that we can address these issues. Dr. King said, the time has come for an all-out war against poverty that rich nations must use their vast resources of wealth to develop an undeveloped school to unschool and feed the unfed. Ultimate great nation is a compassionate nation. He said this when he received his uh, um, Nobel Prize in 1964. Interestingly, I went back and I looked at Barack, uh, Barack Obama's uh, Nobel Prize lecture when he received the uh, Nobel Prize 
2009, and it was remarkable the similarities of the, of the words. Barack Obama said, a just peace includes not only civil and political rights, it must, it must encompass economic security and opportunity. For true peace is not just freedom from fear, but freedom from want. The absence of hope can rot a society from within. So, so I'm concluding that, uh, and the last, you know, the final bullet is my conclusion to you. Diversity should be leveraged to address a complex issue that transcends our differences. And that difference, for the most part, is improving health equity, assuring that every individual reaches their full health potential. Do not say that we can't do this. Do not tell me that Dartmouth and, 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 and beautiful Hanover, uh, New Hampshire, can't do this. I refuse to accept that anymore. So we're all ready to get started, aren't we? <laughs> okay, let's do it. Thank you. Yes. Great presentation. Um, we have some similarities. Actually, I, I got my master's in public health and medical college in Wisconsin. Hey, how about that? Um, extensively about income inequality. Uh, we uh, have the highest level of income inequality uh, uh, in this country uh, that we've had in the past 50 years. And income inequality relates, uh, results in that type of views of those others. Absolutely. Thank you for that, that, that comment. Yes. Thank you very individuals want to go to medical school. Medical schools are not choosing them because medical schools don't have the right standards. We don't understand how to look holistically at an applicant. And instead, we adhere to what I consider an artificial uh, 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 distinction uh, that is uh, something, uh, you know, MCAT scores. And if we in, in the highest uh, uh, echelon of medical centers, if our students don't have 
95th percentile scores, then they're not going to survive when there's absolutely no data showing that, that that's true. But we've created this artificial barrier students as a consequence. I'm not saying that we lower our standards or anything like that. I'm just saying we recognize that there are other metrics that can determine viability and success of a student going into medical schools. And we, I, I sit on the, uh, a group called the Advancing Holistic uh, Review for the WMC, and we were trying to rewrite those and, and, and disseminate those, 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 that, 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 that data. But that's why the students are not getting in. They, they want to. The applicants are there. The applicants are absolutely there. Okay, and so, so, the, so the applications I just mentioned over this past year, are for the first time, actually rose among uh, 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 students of color. Rose significantly, overall, like 5%, I want to make sure I'm good, 5% in African Americans, 0.66% in blacks. Matriculation rates were 5% in Latinos, 3% in blacks. And so the applications are there. It's just that uh, we're not really, you know, again, bringing them in. But I want to go. I'm, I'm an upstreamist, and I want to go even further. And I say, why are the applications not even higher? And I felt that the applications weren't higher because, as a country, we have failed our public school students. We simply do not fund public school commensurate with the level that we need to. We don't fund or support or, uh, or elevate uh, uh, teachers the way we should. And so I said that I'm in diversity and inclusion, right? What am I supposed to do, sit here and, and, and whittle my thumbs? No, I'm going to address some complex problems. If I know the solution, if I know what the problem is, then if I'm not going to do it, no one else will, which is why I started a school in St. Louis, Collegiate School of Medicine and Bioscience, which is now one of the top-rated schools in the, in the state in terms of producing students of color who are going into top-rated academic centers and medicine. You just have to just, just roll up your sleeves and do the hard work. Um, I recently went to a talk, and they were addressing, like, And um, they mentioned the term minoritized, and I was wondering if you've heard this um, used or shifted as, as opposed to minority population. So, yeah, minoritized is, uh, uh, I think, uh, it's probably a better word because uh, we've weaponized this term minority, and, and so that, that's a minority. Uh, they're trying to take what you have as as. To, but minoritized implies that there was a concerted systemic effort to take populations and to and to push push them out of the normal um, uh, 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 place where they can access resources. They they've been pushed. There's been an active process. As a consequence, we have to be held responsible. We as citizens of this country for what has happened. Uh, that's ownership. That's accountability. And some people don't like that, but that's the truth in terms of dismantling racist uh, uh, structures. And so minoritized is a word that I seem use. I don't personally use that word, but that's, I understand why others do think it's a powerful word. Yes. I teach second year medical students and they are just riveted and focused on passing those examinations they have to take. In that context, how have you seen the best medical educators in the context of general medical education faculty, excite them about issues of diversity. You, so medical students come in, they're the passionate, they want to make a difference. You give them an opportunity to make a difference. There's nothing to show that this our our nineteen our our, our antiquated flexionary approach to medical education is the best solution. 
You don't take the best and brightest people and sequester them in a classroom for two years and then take them out and then say, now learn clinical medicine. I, you have to have much more of an integrated approach. And so the best solution for our students is to have them come in and understand we believe that service learning is an effective way of learning basic physiology. We want you to get involved in our Latino health clinic and Casa de Salud. And we want you to come back in and reflect on all these things. And some of the things that you will see there, you're going to learn more when you do your biochemistry and physiology lectures. And we'll talk about those things. When you go and when we do uh, case studies, we're going to have prompts uh, to talk about where people come from and why they're presenting the way they do. Uh, Helen Shields of Harvard really wrote extensively about using uh, these type of cultural prompts in our case studies. And so you do those things. You give the students service learning from day one. You incorporate social issues in their case studies from day one. That's where our curriculum should be. Uh, all curriculums should head that way. We are undergoing a major curriculum reform at Washington University to do just that, to have longitudinal service learning, longitudinal uh, engagement with the community as a core part of our curriculum to really address that issues. Medical students, are, if, if, you, if you tell them to, to pass an examination, they're going to pour their efforts into passing the examination. If you tell them to prepare to become a culturally competent, uh, innovative, creative scientist or clinician, they will do so also. We choose the latter. This is a <clears throat> phenomenal conversation, and I don't want to stop it, but I'm going to let people get to clinics or other places where they may need to go. But we'll stay up here for a bit to answer some more questions. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for thank being you. here today.